Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, thank you to Joseph and to Carla. Um, and it's great to see you. My name's Ben, and I'm the lead pastor here at Vintage. And uh, as you can probably get a glimpse of, we're in a really incredible moment in, in our history where things are growing very fast and events and ministries are launching all over the place. And so um, I hope you managed to catch on that quick run through all those things. Alpha is just going amazingly. I'm so, so thankful to lots and lots of people who came to the Alpha course on Tuesday night. But as Joseph said, it's not too late. You can join. It's an eight-week course. Week two is the last week, though, that you can come. So if you haven't signed up, to come and you want to or bring a mate, you can do it. This is your week um, for that, or even as community groups launch and everything else that's also going on uh, in the church. Um, But I want to ask you this question this morning. Uh, Where does your faith reside? Uh, Where does your hope come from? Where does your joy come from? Where do you find peace? Um, And we're in this series looking at the book of Ephesians, which was written by the Apostle Paul. And as we pick it up today, we are recognizing that Paul's circumstances in writing this are not circumstances that you would normally associate with any of the words that I just gave you. Paul is in prison in Rome. He is nearing the end of his life. Literally any day he could be executed. His dreams of planting churches to the far end of the world look like they're in tattered. He's been rejected. He's been accused of things that he didn't do. And he's been left to rot in this prison cell. But yet, but yet, even despite of everything about his circumstances, which are totally upside down, he doesn't seem to be lacking in joy. He doesn't seem to be lacking in peace or hope or faith. In fact, he's full of those things. There's no moment that you spot in the book of Ephesians where Paul says, I think I'm really much ready to jack all this in. It's just too hard. I think I'm just going to have a pity party and see who comes. Like, no, instead what you see of Paul is unbelievable and unshakable faith. And so what I want to think about this morning is how do we be those kinds of people? How do we be the kind of people who can live with unshakable faith and hope and joy even when our circumstances don't seem to add up, even when today doesn't look like it's going to be a really good day, even when we feel like we are without or we are broken or we are hurting, like how can we still, like Paul, stand in the midst of those? And therefore, also, how do we be a church that does that? How do we be God's vintage church which can weather storms? which can live in those moments where people don't get us, don't understand what we're about, seemingly might even one day want to oppose us or even persecute us. How do we be full of hope and joy and love and peace? Well, the the starting point as we're going to explore this is to notice immediately that Paul's hope, his faith, his joy, was not rooted clearly in his circumstances. It clearly wasn't based in what was going on immediately around him, whether or not he was rich or poor or sick or healthy or free or imprisoned or even how great the churches were doing. His faith was clearly rooted in something else. And it's the something else which we need to unpack a little bit. So we're going to have our reading um, and we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you've got it in your Bibles, that's always a really good thing to have in front of you or on your phone, or if not, um, it'll be up on the screens. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God in his rich, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Thank you. Fantastic. So it's quite possible that Ephesians 2 is one of the most important bits of theology in the whole Bible. This is like mountaintop stuff. Uh, And really, if you want to get into it, you've got to go in kind of deep. And so if you didn't catch all of it on the way through, don't don't worry. We're going to unpack it a little bit today. But this passage gives us the answer to the very question that we were seeking. How do you flourish and bloom even when things are a little bit broken? And here's the answer. And it starts like this. Paul says, do not forget where you were. Do not forget where you were before you met Christ. And now let me, let me ask you this question. I wonder if you today can answer or know where you were before you met Jesus Christ. Now, maybe if you became a Christian recently, that's a kind of easier question. Maybe if you became a Christian gradually as a kid growing up, that's a little bit of a harder question. But Paul says it's so important that we know where we once were before we met Jesus. And the answer, Paul says, is not an answer that you ever want to hear. It's not just you were having a bad day or you needed more riches, or you needed some medication, or diet, or better financial planning, or you needed better friends, or some portion of spirituality in your life. The prognosis he gives in verse 1, it's not a prognosis you ever want to hear or give to anyone else, is simply this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You, before you met Jesus Christ, were actually dead. Now, you might go, hold on a minute, was I? Was I? Like, I mean, if maybe even if you're a Christian this morning, you're now checking your pulse going, hold on a minute, I think I'm alive. I think I'm physically breathing this morning. So what's Paul actually saying? Well, what he's saying is this, is that every human being is made up of multiple parts. And of course, you do have a physical being. And hopefully you are alive this morning. If you're not entirely sure, ask the person next to you just to quickly check. Like, hopefully you are breathing and you were before you became a Christian. But you also have an emotional life. And your emotional life is incredibly important and it can be alive or it can be very sick. But thirdly, you have a spiritual life. You have spirituality. And in a a Christian sense, you were dead. You were dead. Now, let me explain it to you a little bit like this. Um, this This is my iPhone. Uh, Other phones are available from other manufacturers, just to be clear, right? Now, Now, this iPhone is alive right now. I can tell you it has something like about 90% of of charge left. But it was designed to be plugged in. Overnight, last night, I kept it plugged in all night, and I got up this morning and had that joyful thing of turning it on, and and it had 100%, and all was well. 
But the truth is that this iPhone is dying all the time. Now, if you've got a relatively new iPhone, it might last a whole day, if you're lucky enough. If you've got slightly old phone, then it might be more like an hour before it starts to die. But sooner or later, this phone is going to get that low power warning, and the screen's going to go dim, and eventually it's going to shut itself off. And that is actually what Paul is kind of trying to say about the problem of spiritual death. What he's saying is that basically you and I were designed like an iPhone to be plugged in. We were designed to be plugged in to the creator, the created life of God himself. But if you look at Genesis 3 particularly, and we've been popping backwards and forwards to it over the last weeks, what you see in Genesis 3 when those first human beings said, God, actually, we're okay, we're all right, we're going to do our thing was not just sin in the sense of like, oh man, you ate an apple, or you did or you did not do some fruit-related things. It was actually a decision to go their own way, to walk away from God and say, God, we're okay with the fact that you're there, but we don't want you here. We're okay with the fact that we can ask you for things when we need them, but we do not want any sense of being connected to your life. It's like this diagram that I showed you um, a couple of weeks ago with all these lines. See, from the point of the fall onwards, what happened is billions of people, us included, said to God, you are dead to us. We are going our own way. They cut themselves off, Adam and Eve, from the source of life. And death, death entered into the human condition and that death infected the whole world. We see sin, I think, don't we, as you did a bad thing. But actually, sin in this case was simply the decision to say, God, we do not want you in our lives. And the result, just like the iPhone, was a slow but steady spiritual death that comes to the world. Now, we could go like, hold on, that's that's a little strong, Ben, because like, I might not call myself a Christian, but I'm not spiritually dead. You know, a city like LA, right, spirituality is becoming increasingly important to us. And of course, in the sense that we can look at a beautiful sunset. We can stand on a mountaintop, or we can eat a great meal, or we can meditate. Like Those are symbols and signs of a hunger towards spirituality that are really important. But what Paul's saying is that you were designed for more than that. You weren't designed to just occasionally have some nice transcendent moments that could help you. You were actually designed to be joined to the umbilical, through an umbilical cord to God's life itself. You were designed for a personal relationship with the creator, with a father who loves you, who calls you son and daughter, with with a creator who can speak to you, who you can hear, who you can speak to him, where you can enjoy his presence every day of your life. And I think the truth is that every human knows that they are created for something like that. The, The ancient church father, St. Augustine, he said this, like, you have made us for yourself, God. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. The singer Bono from U2 famously said, I still haven't found what I am looking for. Like we we have that sense of longing. But actually being spiritually dead has even worse consequences for us. And the consequences that it has is because we are cut off from the source of all life and power, then actually therefore we are powerless to stand against those very things which seek to cause us harm and destruction. 
And the Bible names them under these three headings. It names them under the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the first one, the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't mean literally your flesh is trying to kill you. I feel like that would be some slightly weird late night movie on HBO, right? (laughs) But what what he means is that each one of us has these slightly twisted and broken lustful desires inside us. Or maybe you don't, maybe, maybe just other people do, right? We have those things where, which kind of cry out, like, just, you know, just, just do it, right? Just do it, right? Don't even think about it. Don't stop, don't wait, just get on with it, you know? You be you, I'll be me, like just those bodily appetites which cry out to us, just do what you feel, which do what you want. Those kind of things, if you're not sure what they are, where you go, that's a really great idea until the moment after, in which case it's a really, really bad idea. And Paul says, we all have that because we live in that, that condition of sinfulness. But then it's not, and sadly, it's not just that, it's like on top of that, we then have the devil. And I don't know if you have a weird picture in your mind of some red horned being with a long tail, right? That, that's not really what the picture of the devil is, but, but it's, it's like those spiritual forces which pile onto your doubts and your fears and your weaknesses and go, go on. Go on, just do it. Do you remember those old cartoons, right? Where they had like, you had a, like an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, right? And the angel would be all like, don't do it. It's a really bad idea. And the, and the, and the devil would be like, do it, right? <laughs> now, I'm not sure the imagery exactly is correct, but the theology isn't bad, right? The theology isn't bad because we have those kind of lies that go into our head, like just go on. You be you, man. Give in to the wrestle. Be true to yourselves. And they land on the brokenness of our hearts. And we make terrible choices sometimes. We, we hurt ourselves. We hurt people around us. And we even hurt the world. And it's kind of that, that story that starts to like, when, it, when it's like multiplied then over like not just one person, but over like all of creation, then you start to get like what Paul calls the world, where you get these like systemic levels of brokenness. Because I, I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting, like I, I remember being in this meeting once where I was new, um, and, and I walked in, and all these people were talking about something, and I was sitting there going, this is crazy. Like, this, this, this is not a good idea. But you know when you're like new in a situation, and you're not sure if it's okay for you to say anything, so you sort of sit there, and you're like, okay, I must have missed something. I'll just be quiet, because these guys, something's not right here. And, and I sat there through that meeting, and then the next meeting, and the next meeting, But the problem was that over time, it wasn't that I just then got braver to then stand up to the thing that I knew was completely bonkers in the room. What actually happened instead was that over time, something inside me went, oh yeah, maybe they're right. Oh yeah, they must be right. They must, it's 120 people in this room and they all believe the same thing. They must be right and I must be wrong. Until later on when we actually followed through on that decision and it went disastrously wrong. Psychologists call it groupthink. And basically, it's like where we persuade ourselves that something is right when clearly it is wrong. And and what Paul basically gives us under the heading of the world is that if enough people all have this thing churning around them where they're feeling like they're being lied to and they're being like in this state of brokenness, if everybody does that all at once, what you then have is a really serious problem. You want to want to ask the question, how is it possible that you ever ever had like a genocide, a holocaust in Germany? Like, how could that possibly be? How do, you, how do you have anything like that where you have it because just over time enough people agree that something really bad is actually maybe okay? 
We see it in like marketing campaigns, cultural things, this vicious cycle where we see a brokenness that then starts to affect not just ourselves, not even just the people around us, but every single level of the human condition. The world becomes broken. In fact, it becomes dead. John Mark Comer. Sorry, this is heavy, I know, but we'll get better in a minute. John Mark Comer, who actually became part of the vintage family this week. I don't know if you saw that news. Um, He says this, Our war against these three enemies of the soul is not a war against guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. And we let those false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. The result is death. Chaos, brokenness, genocides, racism, injustice, human trafficking. You you just didn't name it. Anything you want, it's all around us. It's not surprising, therefore, that when Paul gets to verse 4, he says says this. He says, in this state, humanity is rightly deserving of wrath. Now, if ever there's a word you do not want to hear in church on a Sunday morning, right, surely that is the word. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word wrath. What I, what I have is this picture of this very sweaty, massive preacher in a suit, like with his Bible in his hand, hitting people in the face. You know, that's what I, what I hear. We don't want to hear that. But actually, another way you could translate that word wrath is a word that we do use all the time. And it's the word justice. The word justice. Like over the last few years, haven't we heard this cry that's come up, even in the pandemic, it's like this cry, we need justice. Whether it's like justice for the rights of unborn children or justice for minority groups, whether it's justice for those who are trafficked and inhumanely treated. Like we've cried, we have this cry like something's got to change. Someone's got to do something about this. And we have outrage, outrage when those very institutions which we task with ensuring justice, like our government, our police force, like when we have not seen justice, like we cry, this isn't okay. Like we demand justice because justice is good. You know, and, and here at Vintage, I think one of our marks of mission is, is to be people of, of justice. And I love, I love in our church, you know, that we, so many, so many people hear those, those calls, like just this week, um, in fact, just today, in fact, as we're preaching, some of our team are in Mexico and they've been performing like surgeries, eye surgeries and dental surgeries. Got a picture here up on the screen. Here they are. Such beautiful people. Um, and right this morning, they've actually, they've been conducting 60 surgeries on people who cannot even um, access the most basic eye care or dental care. Like, literally, they cannot do it because of where they live, because of their geography. Like, I love that here in Pasadena, we've got teams who work with those experiencing homelessness to try and, and get them to access health care and housing services and mental health care things. I love that we have people who are like, massively engaged in, in the work with families and people um, who have unborn children. I love that we've got people who are working across international boundaries. We've got people who are working with young people to tell them that they're more than just a a whole mass of conflicting sexual desires. We've got people all over the place. And I love it. Because justice matters. But let me just be honest for a minute and tell you the problem. The problem is that almost always when we cry justice, we're pointing over there. Right? It's extremely easy to be about justice as long as you are either the victim 
or you're uninvolved, right? It's extremely easy to say, they should change, man. They are the problem. Like that should totally change. But how much harder is it to do that when actually we, we implicitly or explicitly might be the very cause of the thing that's going on? Like how easy is it for us to say, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a website. It's just some people having sex on a website. That's totally, totally fine, isn't it? That's definitely not human trafficking. Oh, you know, that thing's really cheap. I'm, I'm sure everybody got treated really well in the production of that thing. Or like, oh man, it's just more convenient to have loads of stuff and throw it away. Like, I'm sure someone will recycle it or do something or whatever it is, right? We just have these things in our mind where we always say the problem is over there. And we forget that we might actually, we might actually be part of the story. We excuse others, but we excuse ourselves, but judge others. But G.K. Chesterton, he's a famous, famous author. One day he, he entered into a competition which was in the Times newspaper. And the, and the question which they were in, people to invited to give the answer to was, was what is wrong with the world? And this is what he wrote, you can see it on the screens. Dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly. Oh my goodness, what, I, think, I don't know if he won or not. <laughs> Probably not. But there's this sense of like, oh my goodness, what if it's true? What if I'm actually implicitly or explicitly, whether I mean to be or not, what if I'm actually part of the story? And I'm not saying that we're all terrible people. I don't want you to come to church and feel like you're a terrible person. You're not. It's just that we're all implicitly or explicitly, we are part of this story, which the, world, which the Bible calls sin, and it's a disease, and ultimately disease leads to death, and you can't fix it. You can't fix it. There's nothing that you can do, but, but, and thank you for not having left yet and waiting for this moment. Maybe the most important verse in the Bible comes in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, and it says this, but because of his, that's God's, great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, but God, and then verse five, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Right, just follow me for a moment because Paul says, number one, the first thing you've got to know is you've got to know where you were before you met Christ and the bad news is, is that you were dead. But because of God's incredible, powerful, amazing, unending love for you, he did something about it. And the thing that he did what? Is that he made you alive in Christ. Paul says, look at what Christ has done for you. Now, I, I don't know if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning. I, I don't know what it is that you would sort of say is true of Jesus. I think we, we live in a a worldview which sort of says Jesus was some nice guy who had some good things to say about some stuff and, you know, that's kind of nice. Actually, that's so, so far short of what Jesus came to do because what Jesus primarily came to do was to deal with the problem of death. He came to deal with the problem of your death and he came to deal with the problem of my death. You see, when Jesus died on a cross, when nails were put in his hands, the biggest problem was not that nails were in his hands and his feet. The problem was that all of the sin and all of the shame and all of the darkness of the world, the flesh and the devil, all of that, everything 
was laid on his shoulders. That's why he cried out from the cross, God, where have you gone? Because he had just descended into the pits of utter brokenness and darkness. And he did it for you. He did it for me. He did it to deal with the problem of injustice. He didn't overlook injustice and say, oh, they're there. They didn't do very well the first time around. But we'll try harder and it'll be better next time. No, because God knew us. He knew that we'd never be able to deal with it on our own, which is why Jesus died on the cross for us. The punishment was due. The only difference is that it didn't come to you and it didn't come to me. It went to him and he took it on the cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's mercy. And you can define mercy literally as this, is not getting what you deserve. We did not get what we deserved when Jesus died. But it wasn't the end either. Because what we just celebrated on Easter Sunday is that actually because Jesus rose again, because he conquered death, by God's grace, suddenly we get a new beginning. Suddenly we get a new story. Death is defeated, this divine exchange through grace, which is available to us, not because we deserved it or because we're going to do better in the future the second time round, but simply as a gift of Jesus' incredible kindness, we get life. And not just a little bit of life, but a fullness of life. A life with purpose, a life with meaning, an identity. We become plugged back in to the very source of life itself. We have an unending access to power and grace and forgiveness and mercy. When God looks at us, he doesn't say, man, you're a mess. He actually says, you are my child. You are forgiven, you are free, you're my son, you're my daughter. And when we see those like super blooms, go super blooms. So we see, you know, the sunset, we drink a beautiful glass of wine of an evening. Like we realize those are just like an aftertaste, a foretaste, just a glimpse of the incomparable riches of knowing Christ that we are free. And that new authority like comes to our lives. That we're raised together with Christ. It's like um, the word that to be in Christ, actually, in, in the Greek, um, raised in Christ, that the word there is actually the same word we use for sync, S-Y-N-C. You know, nowadays when you take a picture on your phone and you go home and it's already on your laptop or you put stuff on the cloud, right? We sync things up. That's the same word. What Paul says is, because of Christ, your new life that comes through faith means you are now in sync with Christ. You're in sync. What Jesus achieved on the cross, what he did is yours. His victory is yours. His life is yours. Now you don't have to be aimlessly trying just to kind of prove that you can do it on your own because you have the life of Christ living in you. That's why in verse 10, he says, we are God's handiwork. Like God's best work, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Like you have a purpose. You were designed with things in mind. It's a beautiful, incredible life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're never going to mess it up. It doesn't mean that you're not on a journey towards fixing some stuff. But it just means that fundamentally, where you were once dead, you are now alive. You have a hope and a future. So you might say, well, okay, so how does that, like, how does that work? So how does it work that I'm supposed to feel joy or peace or like some sense of like hope in the midst of all that? Because life's 
still sucks sometimes. It's like still live on the planet and it feels a bit broken sometimes. So how's that supposed to help us? Well, this is what Paul basically says. He's like, church, remember the gap. Remember the gap. Basically, you were a zero and now you're a 10, right? Just imagine the enormity. You were dead, but now you're alive. And now, and now allow that to reframe that thing that you're facing today. Like, oh my goodness, like today I got to go to the dentist and I hate the dentist. That was me on Friday. Like, I got to go to the dentist. That sucks. Oh yeah, but I was dead. And now I'm alive. Or maybe the dentist's not that bad. Right? Oh my goodness, I just had a massive fight with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Like, that really sucked. Yeah, but I was dead and now I'm alive. You see, that's supposed to like start to reframe our conversation a little bit when we realize the enormity of what we have been saved from and what we've been saved toward. It's supposed to reframe it. Now, I think the sad thing is that usually the church only picks one side of that, one side of the story. You know, I think often, you know, you hear a gospel, don't you, which says, you know, you were a zero, you were a miserable sinner, but because God was kind, he didn't punish you to hell and he now thinks you're a five and he just about tolerates you. So don't be bad again. Right? Heard that gospel? I have. It's not very nice. Or, or on the other side, what we hear is a gospel which says, hey, you were fine. You know, you were fine. You were, you were a five out of 10. Easy, easy. You were a good person. But here's the great thing. God's going to come into your life and he's going to make you happy and he's going to sort your life out. He's going to heal your body and he's going to give you a hope. Like we hear that. Here's the problem is that that gospel is way too small. Either one of those gospels are too small. Paul says, where you find hope, where you're supposed to find joy, where you're supposed to find peace, is situating yourself within the gospel that says you were dead, and rightly so, but now you are fully alive, fully alive in Christ. And when that becomes your defining anchor point, when that becomes like a 65-inch TV that you put up in front of your face, like that's how big it's supposed to be. And if you don't feel it, it might just be because your gospel's too small, because you've taken part of the story, but you haven't got the entirety of the story in, in front of you. The greater the gap, the greater the distance you realize that Christ has taken you, the greater the joy that you will experience in your life. Amen? That's what we're invited into. It's why Paul says in Philippians 4, I've now found the secret to being content. He says, I've found the secret to being content whether I've got lots or whether I've got none. Whether I'm free or whether I'm in prison, I have found the secret to being content because of his great love for us. Because of he, that he is the father of mercy, because he is by very nature God's grace, because God's love did not leave us in our uh, messes. This, this is it. And, and I, I want to just acknowledge that it is a radically different gospel to one that, that many of us live in. Now, I, I feel, and I, I have a lot of friends who said, yeah, I, I gave my life to Jesus because he promised to do some really good stuff for me. Yeah, like, man, I, I needed some healing. Uh, or or I, need, I needed a job. Uh, or I, I needed a, a spouse. Or I needed some kids. Or I needed my situation sorted. So that's why I gave my life to Jesus. And what happens if you, if you have a gospel like that is, is that therefore God is just about as good as whether or not he turns up and does the thing you asked him for today, right? If God comes through for me today, then God is good. But if God doesn't do what I want, then actually probably I'll bug out. 
probably I'll just bug out because either I did something wrong or he did something wrong. But either way, it's not working. And that, sadly, is the kind of gospel, it's the two-buck-chuck gospel that we, we, we often look at in churches. But actually what Paul is trying to get us to do is to reframe the conversation so that actually fundamentally our faith is not based on what Jesus is going to do next for you. It's about what he already did. Do you see the difference? Right? Now, now I'm not saying that when you become a Christian, God will not bring healing. He will. I'm not saying that he won't bring provision because he probably will. I'm not saying that he won't do incredible things in your life that will leave you speechless. He will. It's just that usually those things that he's trying to do in your life are all there to point you back to the central reality, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It already happened. It already happened. And so let me just be brutally honest with you in love. If you don't get the spouse of your dreams, he's still good, right? If he doesn't heal your body tomorrow, he's still good. If your bank account still looks a little bit paltry, he's still okay, he's still good. Why? Because your defining reality is not what he's going to do next, it's what he already did for you. Are you with me? And if that's your story, I promise you, your life will start to look differently. Because actually, it was you feel like you're tossed in the waves of life and you're just tempted to be overwhelmed by everything that's going on around you. What he says to you is, stop looking at all these things, look up here to the unchangeable, to the immovable, to the concrete, to the reality. And, and honestly, that, that's tough sometimes. It takes some doing. You know, Jesus calls it a narrow pathway. And, and you know, if I'm honest, you know, I, I wish sometimes Jesus would just fill my bank account and I wish he would give me everything I ever dreamt of. I, I would love that to be the, the case, but, but actually he has a bigger story. And often, my response, which he takes me through almost seemingly all the time, is like, Ben, actually, are you prepared to die to some of those things? Are you prepared to actually put down some of those things that you think are the most important thing in your life that you couldn't possibly live without? Would you actually just put them down for a minute and come and gaze at my cross? Would you come and gaze at mercy? Would you come and gaze at grace again? And, and as I've put those things down, what I found time and time and again is God said, okay, now, now, Ben, now we can talk about what it means to be my handiwork. Like, now we can talk about what I have for your life. Now we can talk about forgiveness and healing and beauty and provision. We can talk about those things, but only, only when we get this bit right, because this is the most important thing in the world. And so I want to invite you this morning to consider maybe whether or not that is where you base your hope from. Because that is the kind of church which we are called to be. I believe that passionately. That is what a vintage church is. It is one that puts all of its focus, all of its emphasis, all of its time and resources toward this single reality. We were once dead, but we are alive in Christ. That nothing will topple us because of that. That is our story. And maybe this morning you would just like, you just recognize, man, I need to relocate my faith. I've got to relocate my hope. I've got to relocate my joy. Because maybe I, I, I've got just caught up in this worldly story that God is my genie. That God is there just to give me what I want. And actually I'm caught up in the mess of figuring out why it's not all happening like I want. And maybe this morning, what God would just want to do is bring you back to the cross. Bring you back to what he already did. 
bring you back to who you now are, which is non-shakable and non-negotiable in him. Because if you get that bit right, everything else starts to reframe itself around it. Would you stand?